0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Unstoppable Podcast. I'm your host, Diana Chen, and I'm joined today by our guest, Isaiah Jackson. He's the author of Bitcoin and Black America. I've been following him ever since I got into the crypto space earlier this year, bought his book, and I've just been sitting on it for a few months, finally got a chance to reading it, and it's spectacular. So I knew I had to get him on the podcast, and I'm really excited to have him here and have the opportunity to talk to him about Uh, his entire crypto journey, which started in the early, early days and uh, what he's up to today and then with his second book coming out soon. So welcome, Isaiah. I'm so happy to have you here.
1: Oh, man. So glad to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, for sure. So take me back. I know you're you are a super early adopter. I read this in your book. You got into it back in, I think it was 2010 or like 2013, like super early days. So take me all the way back to when you first got into crypto. How did you get exposed to crypto all the way back then? And then what kind of piqued your interest and encouraged you to learn more about it and, you know, just start getting really deep into the space?
1: Oh, yes. So I learned from a roommate and we, um, you know, used to kick around ideas about how to make more money. I was a teacher at the time, 2013. I remembered the recession of 2008. So I knew that, you know, financially something something was wrong here. And honestly, when I first heard the idea, the only reason it was really presented uh, was because I have a tech background in computer science. And that's what I was in. And Bitcoin, you know, back in those days was, you know, Way more techie. It was, it was nowhere near as broad as it is now. The way my roommate presented it, he told me, I saw a video from Max Kaiser. I read an article from the Winklevoss twins. Um, you know, did some research and you know bought my first bitcoins back in 2013. So, for me, the start of it was the curiosity and the fact that it's like this whole new thing that's supposed to change the, the money market and change the economy, which we see now. That's exactly what it's doing you know, the great thing is Bitcoin has been the same since I got into now. It's still working the same. Uh, Crypto has expanded, you know, to to other arenas. But even back then, we understood that something needed to happen. And when Bitcoin came along, the light bulb clicked.
0: Back then, there were a lot fewer resources than we have now in terms of how to learn about it. You really got to go out there and do some digging or but like, how did you learn about it back in 2013? Besides like reading the Bitcoin white paper, which by the way, I don't My personal take is I don't think that's not to say it's not well written. I don't think it's an easily digestible piece of writing for the masses. Did you have to read it a few times? Did you find that to be a good resource or what were your resources back then? And then what do you see as some of the best resources that are out there today for people to start learning, whether it's articles, bloggers, Twitter personalities or um, any other resources?
1: Oh, yeah. So when you first read the Bitcoin white paper... There's no way you get it the first time because the magnitude of what it's trying to achieve, it was like, oh, we're just this little project trying to try something. And even from a technical side, a lot of people don't get it. Cause you have to know encryption. You have to know, you know, the the foundations of computer science. Adam back introduced hash cash, those types of things. Most people don't know all of them. So the Bitcoin white paper, I've read it hundreds of times. But back then, you read it, but it was like, all right, I need to go to something like Bitcoin Talk. Bitcoin Talk was a big place to go back then. Reddit was huge. Uh, a lot of underground stuff. It was hard to find information. I mean, you really had to, you really had to love it back then. That's why a lot of us stuck around to now, and really had to to search it. So that was the start. And then some of the resources now. Now we have a plethora of resources. One of the resources that have been consistent long term, uh, LOP L O P P dot net slash Bitcoin Resources uh, works for Casa Hold big Bitcoiner, I would say crypto wise, you definitely always want to check out CoinMarketCap, which most people know about. But news wise, um, you know, my daily show, The Gentleman of Crypto, we talk about news every day on YouTube. That's one resource. I mean, it's a lot of it's a lot of resources available, but you want to have good information. Right. So those are the ones I would choose to start. And then from there, also make sure that you read uh, books like Inventing Bitcoin, Bitcoin Standard, uh, maybe Mastering Bitcoin if you're more technical. So those are some resources to start with.
0: Awesome. And then if you were to explain crypto to somebody who's totally new to it, what would be your like 30 second pitch of what crypto is and how would you explain it in in a way that gets them hyped about it and encourages them to go out and learn more?
1: So I always say uh, Bitcoin or crypto is money and money allows freedom. And the only way we can get there in the future is through this new digital currency. And you can choose whichever one you want. I usually stick with Bitcoin and then i try and go from there and let them see the numbers or tell them the numbers and say, hey, Bitcoin's the best performing asset of the last decade and long term, mostly everything that is liquid will sort of be on a Bitcoin standard. So you really don't have a choice. You can either get on it now or you can be a consumer later. And most people are interested then where they're like, what? I don't have a choice. (laughs) So they're kind of like, what do you mean? And I think once they see the momentum that has picked up in the market and where we're headed, they get it uh, from there. So try to keep it short and sweet and try not to confuse people because most people, they're not technical, but we do have the stuff in place to make it easy.
0: Yeah, for sure. So other than just, you know, being confused about all the technical things going on, what do you see as some of the other major roadblocks that it's preventing mass adoption of crypto?
1: Well, (laughs) we're, we're using media, but I would say mainstream media, maybe. Because a lot of people I talk to, they always bring up the fact that, hey, I saw this on CNBC. Hey, I saw this on whatever, whatever. Usually it's conflicting things. So they don't know which way to go. And a lot of times I, we always say in our community, do your own research. And the reason we say that is because if you listen to media, you'll be up, you're down, you know, your, your heart, heart rate will be up. Uh, you'll lose hair thinking about the price and what's happening next. So I think media may be one, even though that's their job. You have to get over that and do your own research. Um, I think another thing holding holding it back is regulation. I think regulation is so far behind in the US, I would say, but it's so far ahead in other countries. It's like, why can't we speed up? You know, it's sort of this thing like, hey, I like the innovation, but let's slow it down. Let's stop innovation while we figure it out. And it's like, that's never going to happen. So I think those two things have slowed it a bit, but it hasn't stopped it, right? Um, we're at a point now where Bitcoin's almost 60,000 and nobody's really. You know, super excited. They're like, oh, yeah, this is in- inevitable now. And the crypto market seems inevitable. So I think those are, you know, slowing it down, but not stopping it.
0: Can you just give people an idea of like what you mean when you say regulation in the US is so far behind? Like, what are some countries that are farther ahead in regulation? And then what are like some of the areas of regulation where, you know, like the US government really needs to step it up ASAP and get moving on it so that we can actually make more practical uses of crypto?
1: Oh yeah, so I don't want to, you know, make a broad statement of the entire U.S. per se, because we do have Wyoming, which is has a blockchain sandbox. They've had, you know, very uh, favorable rules and laws for the uh, blockchain space. Florida Mayor Suarez is basically creating a Bitcoin city in Miami, which I just came back from, <laughs> and plan to go back. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't want to say the entire U.S., but I think it, that's the point. Is like, why is it in different places? You should be able to coordinate a way for us to be ahead, because if this is the future. You have countries like China, where basically they, in my opinion, are moving towards a Bitcoin standard. You have countries like Korea, where they've had better regulations in place to build out exchanges and people are using it. Uh, You even have countries like Nigeria, where they have, I think, the third most volume of users. They haven't necessarily had good regulation, but the people want to use it so much, uh, they've had to change. And that's what I think the US has to understand is why even get to that point? (laughs) We don't even want to get to the point where people are like, hey, we only want to use crypto. Why are you not allowing this? You should just go ahead and let it happen. Let innovation happen and then regulate based off of the mistakes people have made. Inform people. But I don't really believe in keeping adults out of a open money system, which is what we're building.
0: It's a bit of a chicken or the egg problem, right? Because it's like the government is maybe waiting for pressure from the people to set the regulation. But then people aren't going to use crypto until there's regulation because they don't feel like it's safe to do so.
1: Yeah. And it's it's weird. But at the same time, with the value increase, we know, we know what happens. People come into the market Network effect, and I don't think they'll have a choice at some point. Uh, <laughs> they'll have to do something. So it's like, why not start now? So we're starting to see regulations, but it's kind of, I don't know, kind of iffy. I've seen some stuff that I'm like, hey man, calm down on trying to make you know certain things illegal without knowing you know the process. Like I don't know how they're gonna do airdrops with taxes, or I don't understand you know NFTs with securities. You know what I mean? Like it's it's kind of hard to figure that out in you know less than a few years. So we need some time, but we'll be all right.
0: All right. Well, let's move on and talk about your book, Bitcoin and Black America. Part one is out already. It's, it's been out since 2019. And then part two is coming out. Pre-order is already available. So you can go ahead and pre-order the book. And then do you have you set a date when it's set to ship or do people know that yet?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah, so currently we're looking at April 17th for the uh, ship date. I uh, had to work out some things legally, um, but everything's all good now. We got to go. So shipping April seventeenth. If there is a delay, there will be you know contacts. But yes, pre-orders already now. I can't wait for people to read the book. Uh, there is some pushback. Uh, the first one was a little popular, so there has been a lot of pushback. Been fighting some silent battles, but we're through it now. In the second edition, I can't wait for it. All new information, seven new chapters, a broader Black blockchain directory, and I think there's a lot of information in there people overlook that uh, they can they can find very useful, even if they're not a part of the Black community.
0: Got it. So is part two going to be a little more advanced than part one? Is it building on those topics? Or is it just like an update based on, you know, what's been happening? This space is moving so fast, you know, so it's like you got to constantly update that information.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, So since the book was written uh, a few months prior, it sort of is showing what's happening now. I I I can't wait for people to read so they can look and say, "Hey, did you just write this yesterday?" <laughs> because I was writing about this stuff 6 months ago and now it's happening. So, I think that was sort of a, a blessing in disguise, but the book itself is uh a little bit of an update, but more of just a step up in inf- in the information. Like, for example, I feel like most people have heard of Bitcoin. Maybe even own a little bit. Maybe own a little crypto. But, you know, things like having your own node, that's important. I think that's that's how you actually build a decentralization having a private wallet, being able to generate your own keys. Uh, what do you do in Bitcoin and marriage situations uh, as far as long-term generational wealth? Uh, people don't know these laws exist. They don't know if there's a separation, this happens, or if you stay together, how to protect it. I have about 40 different countries that I discuss as well because remittance payments are becoming big. So uh, much bigger thought process around this. And of course, with people reading the first book, I think in the second book, uh, it's like a 200 level course in college. If you read the 100 level, 200 level is a step up. And I, I hope more people can learn just like they did from the first one.
0: One of the things I love about your first book is that there's so many practical cases like you really talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in a, in a very practical way, which I think is really missing out there. And that's One thing that I think is preventing people from getting into the space is they can't wrap their minds around the use cases for it. And you really break it down in your first book. So I'm looking forward to reading the second one, too, and seeing more of the use cases. Take me back to when you were you just got the idea to write your first book. What inspired you to write a book?
1: (laughs) I always wanted to write a book. Just one, though. I always said I I think everybody should. I had a Jewish friend uh, who had a saying, you should plant a tree, write a book and have a child. Uh, because they last, they outlast you. So I always wanted to write a book. And one of the biggest things with me was, I didn't know what that book was going to be about. But once I learned enough about Bitcoin, I wanted to make sure uh, I related it to the Black community because there was so much synergy. Uh, the group economics of Bitcoin is so natural. Like me and you, we don't have to know each other, but we both are making Bitcoin better just by existing and supporting it. So uh, that's that, to me, was very powerful. I wanted to put that together. And I wanted to make sure the Black community didn't miss out Uh, on an opportunity like the tech boom. I feel like we missed, you know, the brunt of the tech boom, uh, a lot of the fintech boom as well. And I think now we have opportunity uh, to grow wealth in a new economy. if We can be the the owners this time around. You don't have to always be consumers. Uh, You don't always have to, you know, work and and do all these things to to make wealth. I think Bitcoin is a much better place. And I wanted to make sure uh, that the book represented that.
0: Got it. And so in your book, you talk mostly about Bitcoin. Obviously, that's what what it's titled. When you were thinking through this, like, are you just particularly bullish on Bitcoin or do you sort of see any kind of cryptocurrency serving the same purpose that you talk about in your book?
1: A lot of people say you shouldn't put your eggs in in one basket. Um, But I always say Bitcoin is the basket. And I feel like everything else is the eggs. And what that means is I feel like most things will be denominated in Bitcoin as far as value. Uh, However, DeFi NFT market, different cryptocurrencies with use cases as a business will absolutely flourish because you know a lot of people look at it as, hey, this is maybe centralized by a foundation or a person. But what I always say is, like businesses are, if a business is, if a business flourishes and crypto is what they use as as their method, they're going to flourish as well. So definitely interested in other parts of the market, but I just think that the foundation of it will end up being Bitcoin, and that other things that will be valuable will be valued in Satoshi's at a certain point.
0: Yeah, for sure. And you talk about this a little bit in your book, but how would you respond to people who are resistant to buying Bitcoin because they're kind of scared away by how volatile it's been over the years?
1: Ah, man. Yes. Volatility. I love, I, you know, I love when people bring it up simply because it's one of those subjects that's been argued All eight years I've been in Bitcoin. I mean, literally never had a a conversation without it. And what I want people to understand is that two main statistics about volatility. One, if you've bought Bitcoin and hold it for at least three and a half years, you're in profit, every single person. Second, 99.7% of people who have bought Bitcoin ever are in profit right now. So when people say volatile, I always say, well, it depends on your time frame. If you think to yourself, I'm going to buy this and flip it in three months, you might have a tough time. Uh, But if you think about holding or buying and holding long term, maybe dollar cost averaging, uh, the numbers are there. This is a layup investment. This is a future currency that is scarce. So the value you can see, the value proposition is there. So I just think uh, when people say volatile, it's like mm, not, not if you're doing it for the right reason and holding it. So I don't ever really have that argument with people. I tell them those two stats. And then from there, they're like, well, hmm, I should just buy it and save it, right? It's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's not something you throw around because you have to have that first property, store value as money before you can get to medium of exchange and that unit of account.
0: Having read your first book, my opinion is I, I think everybody who's interested in crypto should read it. But when you first wrote the book, who was your intended audience? Was it just the black community or was your intended audience, you know, like you want everybody, you think everybody can benefit from reading it?
1: Oh, yeah, I absolutely thought everybody could benefit, but I had to put it out to the black community as a signal like, hey, we need to be a part of this, too. Also, my family is the black community. And that's the thing is if I'm writing to my family, which was, you know, my initial crowd. And then as the book got bigger, I'm like, yeah, I want to write to everybody. I started realizing the parallels between black community and others. So at that point, it was a no brainer. You might as well come up with uh, results. In your or or plan in your community, so that other communities can can use it as a template. So uh, it worked out that way. And again, when people say, uh, "I'm not black," can I read it? I'm like, "Yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> it's just a blueprint in my community, and you can use it for yours."
0: One more quick question before we dive into the meat and potatoes of what your book is actually about. One interesting thing about your books is I I believe there's only a limited supply of them, right? So once they're sold yes. out, they're sold out, there's never going to... be Okay. So uh, I think, is it 10,000 books?
1: 10,000. 10,000 10, books. Mm-hmm.
0: Why did you decide to set a limit on this. And like right now, NFTs are booming and the concept of rarity. Was that something that was on your mind when you set a, a limit to how many books would be printed? <laughs>
1: uh, not at all. Uh, actually, making it an NFT wasn't the case, but I have a friend, uh, Jose, and we used to, you know, talk about business stuff in college. And he introduced this video to me, the concept of 10,000, which basically is if you have 10,000 loyal people and you have a $100 worth of products, you can make a million dollars a year. And that's a very simple equation, even though you know you have to do the work to get there. Um, I always kept that in my mind. This was probably back in oh seven when he introduced this to me. <laughs> so uh when the book came out, I was like, what is something that nobody's done with books? And I haven't really seen scarcity in books. People, you know, they want to sell as much as possible. But I I thought to myself, this message is so important. The people that really want it, which is why the price point is hundred dollars, they're going to get it. And these are the people that I can email constantly for years. I feel like for decades we can constantly Uh, have products, have stuff for them, uh, because this is a very important time. And I wanted the sense of urgency to be there. With the first book, anybody can buy it because I think it's very novice. But with the second one, it goes deep. It's like, who's serious? And I feel like if you get 10,000 strong people, you're good. And I love that it's scarce. (laughs) You know, I didn't think that many people would would care that much. But the fact that it is scarce, a lot of people, just like Bitcoin, are saying, hey, I need to get it now and learn now instead of waiting until later.
0: A hundred percent, yeah, and not that ten thousand is a small number, but quality over quantity, and you've you've kind of got both there.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, and uh, yeah, I may have uh, high hopes to ever sell ten thousand, but in my opinion, that's all I really need long term.
0: I can totally see you getting there, so I I don't think that's a stretch at all. All right, so diving into more of the substance of the book, so. One thing I loved about the book is that it not only was it very educational from a crypto perspective, but it was also very educational about some of the problems in America, at least with finance and how some of the systemic racism that we face in our country have really had a negative impact in certain communities, black communities in particular and other underprivileged communities. So for people listening who maybe aren't aware of this, didn't grow up in a community, didn't experience this for themselves. Give people a little background on what are some of the ways in which our traditional finance system in America does not serve the black and brown community?
1: Uh, yes. Yeah. So we have a few different moments in our history that were key to sort of breaking down black, the black economy. In the second book, I write extensively about this, The Black Wall Street Era, um, if you don't know, the second most prosperous time for black people was the late 1800s, right after the Emancipation Proclamation. And, you know, most people think that historically they think black people were always poor and downtrodden, all of our, you know, existence. And honestly, that has been a lie. That's been told so many times. Everybody believes it. But we had so many different communities. Black Wall Streets is what they were called. Libraries, doctors, lawyers, their own planes, uh, their own <laughs> their own everything, schools, Uh, And flourishing. And these communities were literally burned down by white people who were neighboring who were jealous or that they would make up some excuse that some dude uh, said something to a, uh, a white woman and they would use that as an excuse to go burn down the whole entire community. And this was all over the U.S. So that instilled fear. Uh, for one, because a lot of uh, black people started to get to a point where they say, hey, if we open a business, we do too good, they're going to burn it down. Because <laughs> to people that's how it was then. That is still a little bit of, of fear. Uh, and it also got rid of an economy where they had to start from scratch. So you have to think, generational wealth is usually compounded. Compound interest, uh, I forget the guy who says it, is like the eighth wonder of the world. Over time, you build that wealth, that's how you really make money. If you keep having to start over and start over every generation, that's, that is one uh, blow that happened you know, very hard and, and that affected us. Next thing that happened, FHA loans. People that came back from the war, Black people, white people, Asian, Mexican, we all fought beside each other in the war, in World War II, came back. And 98% of FHA, Federal Housing Authority loans, went to the white community. Now, that is one of the standards of building wealth is real estate. So if you start off in 1940s with all this real estate going to the white community and 2% go to uh, the black community another, you, you, you can't really build wealth from there. So you're starting over again. Um, and of course, from that point, redlining, they gave white people to the communities. Then the bank said, hey, uh, we're going to draw lines around these communities where you can and can't live. So you have black communities that can only live in certain spots and then boom, they build highways straight through it. So the property value can never actually increase. That was a concerted effort by the government because they built it through the poorest. They kept saying it's the poorest neighborhoods, but you made those neighborhoods poor. And those people just happened to be 99 percent black. And they built the highway straight through it. That's why if you go down 85, 95, any major highway, when you get off the exits, it's usually more poor black neighborhoods. That was deliberate. And these things happened over you know the last hundred or so years, all the way to the point where now we're looking at inflation. Where we might be looking at 15 to 20% today, which affects everybody. But if we've had all these things in our uh, past, they often say if the US has a cold, black community has a flu, uh, it's going to be even worse for us. So I think Bitcoin is that solution. And these are just examples of things that have happened uh, along the way, but much more, um, you know, in the books, uh, in both books.
0: As you sort of like move through that journey and discovery that DeFi is the solution to all of this. I think it's really interesting, especially given Everything that's happened over the last year. One interesting quote from your book is You said, I don't believe that putting your life on the line for a week protest that achieves nothing will work for the black community. And then later on, you say, I propose that we build our foundation of social change and protest by steadily moving our funds out of the banking system. So this is really interesting because, you know, with the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement over the last year and with all the protests that have happened, I think a lot of a lot of allies, I mean, I, I can only speak to that, have seen, you know, all these uh, the protests and this movement as like the change, or the thing that needs to happen for a change to happen. And you're sort of making this other argument that like, hey, maybe let's like not waste our time with these protests and maybe spend this time educating the Black community on DeFi and things like that that will actually like give them a practical change and benefit. So talk a little bit more about that, like, you know, like what's the thought process behind that? And then how did you develop this train of thought that like maybe what we need isn't the protests and all of that stuff, but we just need like practical change education, like more of the practical things?
1: Oh, yeah. So I, I look historically at what we have already done as a community to try and change how things are. We've already protested hundreds of years. I mean, people have walked the streets. People have got killed by dogs. People have got hit with the firefighter hose. I mean, people have walked, with, they've done this before. Why are we, anybody that repeats the same process and, and expects a different result, that is literally the definition of insanity. So looking historically at how the Black community has been treated, the only way to get leverage, because I don't really care if you like me or not, that's, that's not really my concern. I'm talking about leverage like a business. If we're going to approach the US government or other groups of people and say, hey, we want to do business with you and we can flourish by ourselves, then you have to have leverage. The only way to have real leverage in this economy is to be able to have an asset such as Bitcoin, which is unconfiscatable. You can't take it from us. And if we are moving it out of your system, you do not have the savings. You do not have the funds to loan out and do the, the things that you do. Um, and I think that this is not only in our community, but others. And I think any gripe that you have with the broader powers, you can use that. But with us, it should be, hey, we don't owe you any loyalty. You literally bankrupt our, our our community, and now you want us to to do business with you. So to have that leverage, you have to have something economic. If you want to march, that's fine. If you want to hold signs, that's fine. If you want to tweet it out, that's fine. But in my opinion, it has not worked to the extent of where we're actually changing anything. And if Black Lives Matter has all of that money that they say, hey, you just put in Bitcoin right now, Um, <laughs> just put a QR code on the website, and let's get it going. Because if it's not economic, I'm not really interested because everything else to me is is feelings and, and how you feel and how, you know, people socially, how people, in, re, uh, you know, act with each other. I don't really care about that too much until the economic side is is fixed.
0: So for people listening then who aren't familiar with DeFi or aren't bridging the gap between, okay, I hear you on all the problems that we face and I see that, but how is DeFi the solution to my problems?
1: Oh, yeah. So, DeFi cuts out the human aspect of finance, which we all know is flawed. There's greed, there's racism, there's whatever, et cetera. Anything that involves humans is going to have that. Now, when you have code as law, you can, in a decentralized fashion, have a financial system that does not need the input of whatever you know, KYC or Know Your Customer things that they have. So, De- DeFi is basically the promise that you can get a loan if you have the collateral. That's it. Doesn't matter what color, age, uh, country you live in. None of that. DeFi gives you the ability to participate in the financial system without the human aspect or barriers. So that is, to me, all important in the future, because once you get rid of that, you you can get to a point of freedom and we can get out of this rut where humans are making decisions based on how they they feel or how they don't like this group. or how, Who cares about that? Finance sh- shouldn't even involve that. Keep that for the social side. <laughs> uh, but again, I need people to understand that economically, if you're free, um, you know, DeFi and it looks much better than the centralized finance system that we have now.
0: Obviously, DeFi is still in its early days right now. So what are some things that, from your perspective, still need to develop in DeFi uh, in order to, you know, before we get to where we want to be ultimately?
1: Well, as far as the code goes, we got to stop with the hacks. Uh, we've had about 17 DeFi protocols that's got, gotten hacked in the last two years. So that you know doesn't cause reassurance, but you can fix that. That's the good thing about technology. You can scale up and you can change and have actual code that's audited and that works. I think we need more audits. Some of this code is just sort of rug pools. They get people in, they promise them 80% yield or whatever it is, and then they rug pool And which that's the immaturity at the beginning. But the same thing was happening with Bitcoin. It happened with every cryptocurrency early on. So once they solve that, and I think also, too, once they have infrastructure in place to uh, provide services across the board, like lending, lending is, is something huge right now. And I feel like they're building those rails where DeFi is becoming more and more relevant. So you have Aave and you have Maker and you have these abilities to get loans just off collateral, which is how it should be. But you also do have those issues as well, where you don't really have a strong derivatives crypto market or, you know, some of the other things in the financial market. So once that's built out, I think DeFi will succeed long term. And more people need DeFi than they need the current financial system. I can promise you that. So (laughs) the numbers are just getting started. Everybody needs a way to join. And the centralized way just hasn't worked.
0: Another problem you talk about in your book is the difficulties that the black community has had with getting funding for their projects. And this is obviously a very important thing as we want blockchain and crypto to grow. There's more and more projects uh, coming out there. So the last chapter of your first book is actually called Blackchain. And Blackchain is a peer-to-peer loan and equity crowdfunding platform that matches black business owners and um, with investors from all around the world. So tell us a little bit more about Blackchain.
1: Absolutely, so Blackchain right now looking at the beta launch for June and looking at a full launch uh, at the end of the year. So I wanted to create a platform that combined the DeFi aspects, I said, with lending with the ability to use Bitcoin, because a lot of people don't realize DeFi is not only Ethereum. If you look at you know companies like Sovereign, if you look at uh, Rootstock, uh, RSK, um, they have the ability to do it on Bitcoin, which I think I'm sort of ahead of the curve because lightning, when it comes around, the speed and the ability to do it, I think will solve a lot of the problems that cryptos have tried to solve. So. Uh, We're trying to put that platform together now by June. Uh, The peer-to-peer aspect will be micro-lending. If you have Bitcoin, you have the collateral, you get a loan. You own your own keys and that sort of thing, just because I think that's how you get a circular economy where you don't really have to go outside. You can get loans, and then you can also spend it at a certain point if you're a business or just hold on to it. So uh, definitely building on that for this year.
0: That's awesome. I'm super excited Mm -hmm. to see that launch and see how that goes. That's, That's really cool. Absolutely.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Thank you.
0: Yeah. I'm just wondering, too, like what has been the response from the black community after reading your your first book?
1: Um, uh, Overall positive. Um, I've probably only had a few people who have had disagreements, but, you know, that makes it better. Right. That that gets you stronger. So um, and most of the disagreements were, you know, they weren't big things. They just didn't understand. And then once they did, they actually ended up agreeing. So. Uh, It's been overall, you know, successful uh, as far as the Black, uh, Bitcoin and Black America book tour. And most of the people that have told me about the book, a lot of the things in there to me, I thought were very elementary, but they, it was like one little thing that turned the light bulb on for them. Like, oh, this is how that works. You know what I mean? So that was, I think the best response I've gotten is that for most people, they heard about it. They may have seen or somebody telling them about it, but it was like the one thing that saw or answered their question that got them on their way, which I'm glad to say I was able to help with that.
0: That's awesome. That's really good to hear. And uh, speaking of the book tour, by the way, are you do you have plans to resume the book tour once COVID oh, yeah. is over? Yeah,
1: hopefully um, we can get everything resolved by June. Um, the first date looking at Bitcoin 2021 and then going from there um, all the way to the end of the year, uh, simply because I think personally, we, we can make videos all day. We I can write books that's fine. But if you can see people in person, nothing is better than a Bitcoin meetup or a place where everybody there can answer questions. You can meet people face to face. So that's sort of why I want to make sure this book tour, you know, is safe, of course, but that it happens over a long period of time. I want to go out the country, see people, and then you can actually touch and see what's going on in their communities.
0: For sure. That would be awesome. I'll keep my eye out for that. And then I want to also dive into your personal journey a little bit because It's, you know, you were an early adopter and it hasn't been a totally smooth ride, as I'm sure everybody can say, you know, everybody who got into Bitcoin in 2013 can say so. You've been through a lot personally since 2013. Um, You've experienced, you know, when you first got into it, it's like none of your friends or peers understood what you were doing and they were maybe skeptical of it. And then you experienced the bear market after you had already bought some Bitcoin and then you got hacked and lost a bunch of money in crypto. So you've been through a lot. Tell me, you know, like what was it that kept you going through all of that and helped you to persist and still be in the place that you are today instead of just giving up on it when one of those things <laughs> happened?
1: Oh, well, I've always been a fighter. So uh, it's gonna take more than that to stop something I actually believed in. Because again, most people think of it as a way to flip it or trade it or a quick investment. I actually believe what the message of Bitcoin was trying to convey is that, yeah, we need an alternate financial system. He who holds the gold, holds the power, right? So we have to figure out a way where there's not some central uh, way of, the, of doing it. So losing money, uh having different things happen almost getting robbed i didn't write about that in the book but that's happened before so all of these things um (laughs) you know to me were just like that means i'm on the right path if stuff is in the way it's like all right i must be on the right path because i mean honestly i haven't heard of anybody that's been successful without struggles so if you stop as soon as something happens it's like well you're basically cutting off any chance of success you had and just seeing this thing through which to this point has worked out, and I think long term it will as well. So it takes a lot to, to stop me. Uh, and I, I just don't think those things should stop anybody. Again, like you said, the hack, uh, that was one of the things that for most people, they're done. They're, they're out forever. But actually, you know, I didn't lose any personal Bitcoins. It was a an exchange, you know, like in the book I described that allowed it to be sent away. My security is actually better than theirs. <laughs> so I was actually confident about that. Like, hey, it's happened, but I've proven to myself you know, I actually kind of know what I'm doing. So uh, yeah, it's, it's tough. You got to go through some stuff. You got to pay tuition on certain stuff, but it happens. And I'm glad I'm, I'm still here.
0: Yeah. And you share a little bit about that in the book, too, like some of the lessons that you've learned. But just for our listeners here, like what what are some of the important lessons that you learned from going through all of that and maybe share some tips for people that are just getting into the space today so that they can set themselves up for success and not have to go through the things that you went through?
1: yes oh yeah so uh use a vpn whenever you're that's just practical any internet usage uh use two-factor authentication on any exchange that you use uh anytime you download a wallet make sure that that wallet is from the actual website and not some you know third party that can get your keys uh same thing with hardware wallets make sure it's from the website not amazon or some other place uh where they can steal your keys Uh, i would also say From a security standpoint, that's the most important thing because who cares if you make it, you know, all this money with Bitcoin or if you have all of this wealth, if somebody can just take it, right? So you want to make sure you have that. And I would say it's it's more important to me uh, than most people. But you should honestly make sure that everybody around you owns Bitcoin and knows about it uh, because that's security as well. It's like, oh, if I don't have the resource, somebody else can. If you're a lone wolf walking out here, I understand. But um, for most people, having that group around you actually helps.
0: Yeah, and I like what you said in the book about um, you know, I think a lot of people view Bitcoin and crypto as sort of sketchy because it's like you can get, still get hacked and then you got to like do all these things that you said like you know, make sure you have a VPN, turn on two-factor authentication. All of these things which are good internet 2.0 practices as well, but a lot of people still don't or aren't in the habit of doing. And it's really just about like as we learn more and more about the internet as the internet evolves more and more, we learn more about how to be safe on the internet. And these are just safety practices that I think right now might seem a little, you know, stringent and extreme to people. But in the future, it's just going to be like, like second nature. Or maybe if you go talk to a 10 year old, you know, they're like, well, this is obvious, like, duh, you have to do this. Like, how do you not know this? And it's, it's more just, you know, with people who, were alive during a time when we didn't have the internet that we are still sort of learning about these safety measures. But all of this is just to say it's not that crypto is sketchy or any less secure. It is more secure than the internet that, internet that we have today. It's just that we have to train ourselves to have these good, you know, safety and privacy practices in our day-to-day usage.
1: Absolutely. With great power, becomes great uh, responsibility got to make sure that you can, if you want to be self-sovereign, you got to be able to do it yourself. So good time to learn. And, and uh, you mentioned 10-year-olds being able to do it. I just want to say I am teaching a summer camp this summer. They'll definitely be using two-factor authentication and VPN. So.
0: Nice. Yeah, I, I've had some people on the podcast who have kids and all of them have said, yeah, it's way easier to tell my 10-year-old about crypto <laughs> and NFTs and explain all that to them than it is to explain to my friends my age. So it's for the next generation. So for someone who is from the Black community who's listening to this podcast, or honestly even just anybody who's new to crypto, what are the first things that they should do right now to get started with crypto?
1: All right. So first thing, get some skin in the game. Buy it. Even if you're on the fence, who cares? Buy one. You can buy one dollar worth of Bitcoin on Cash App. Uh, you can buy ten dollars on you know on the exchange of another crypto. Um, that may be cheaper. It doesn't just get skin in the game. That's the first thing. So buy it. Uh, the second thing you want to do is make sure that you secure it. Like we said before, no point in getting it if you can't secure it. So getting a hardware wallet, um, being able to have a process to move it off exchanges, uh, all of the things i discussed before, you want to secure it. And then last thing I would say is you want to find a way to earn Bitcoin because most people, they'll they'll show you where to buy it. They'll say you should buy this amount. But if you can find ways to earn it, I think that's a way for people who are just starting to get bitcoin and see how it grows without actually giving up any capital because if you get on a place like lolly l-o-l-l-i you can get cash back rewards for things you buy in bitcoin same thing with fold App. you get cash back rewards every time you use their card in bitcoin and you know i'm i'm the type of guy i like postmates um uh, and i buy too much postmates uh but every time i do i get three and a half percent cash back in bitcoin which i haven't done anything different um and i think that's where you have to meet people meet them where they are. You don't have to change your lifestyle completely to get into the Bitcoin space. Just start with those three things, buy it, secure it, and then of course, earn it. So use uh, some of the tactics in my second book. I actually have eight ways to earn it in uh, the second book. It's an entire section on that. And then there's other ways online as well. So you want to make sure you can get your hands on the most scarce asset in the world.
0: That's awesome. Love it. And then obviously hold it, right? So that's another big question is once you've got the Bitcoin, do you treat it as a savings account, basically, or Mm -hmm. do you try and go out there and use it? You know, if your local coffee shop offers Bitcoin as a payment, do you go and buy your coffee in Bitcoin? (laughs) Or, you know, like what's your take on that?
1: Yeah. So, you know, money has three stages Um, store value, um, medium of exchange, and then unit of account. So we're at the store value era. Uh, for Bitcoin, which we're just proving that Bitcoin, again, 99.7% of people holding it are in profit. 100% of people that have held it three years are in profit. So we're proving it's a store of value. What I think the medium of exchange will happen, uh, where I'll actually spend it, is where we get the Satoshi standard, where basically things are priced in Satoshis. I think, personally, $1 will equal Satoshi one day. And you know we'll have that sort of metric where we'll have to change how we think about money and how much things cost. But purchasing power goes up with Bitcoin, so that means more people will be able to buy more things who have Bitcoin. And because everybody can get it, um, you know, currently I think that's that will be a time where I spend Bitcoin. Because again, once that happens and businesses are accepting it and people are using it, then you have the unit of account era where Bitcoin is seen as money and it, you know, fulfills the promise that was in the white paper. So I think it just takes time, but those things are in place to happen. Uh, but currently, buying it and holding it is the best strategy.
0: One bitcoin is a million satoshis, right? So are you saying that bitcoin's gonna get up to one million?
1: Uh, well, a hundred million, yeah. I think bitcoin. One hundred. Uh, it's
0: a hundred million, yeah. Yep. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah hundred million. <laughs> yeah. So I think all that'll right, happen to the
0: moon.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I honestly think that there is no top for where bitcoin can go because if it basically sucks up all of the the money that's out right now, bonds, gold, silver, market, all of that, it can get there pretty easily
0: got it and then long run if we're talking like next 10 years what are things that people should be doing to set themselves up for success in the long run and create that generational wealth that we want them mm-hmm. to create
1: oh yeah uh so with buying it and securing it you want to make sure again you teach the people around you because generational wealth can't happen if nobody else in your family knows your private keys or can access your treasure you know what i mean like you just basically just it it's gone away so you want to make sure that that's in place if you have a will if you have a way to to relay that message to family you want to do that also with generational wealth you want to make sure that you not only have i wouldn't say a business in bitcoin but you should have something related to the crypto industry meaning you should either accept crypto you should either you know have a crypto law aspect or if you're an engineer you should probably be creating smart contracts at some point that has to be a part of your life because if you can pass it down to your kids which again i'm teaching a, a bitcoin summer camp this summer if you te- pass that down to your kids, they can a- enter an industry that is the future before, you know, they don't have to wait 30 years for it to be established and then just hope to get a job. So um, I think that is very important to create generational wealth.
0: Got it. And then last question for non-Black allies that are listening to this podcast maybe you know white people who have benefited from the system a little bit what are some things that they can do to help the black community and to just help even out the playing field in the long term
1: um i would say first thing is if you didn't do anything don't feel guilty Uh, i hate this sort of uh narrative where people are like yeah you're white you got it from somebody else from your parents or whatnot you should give us a piece of it it's like well they just inherited it i mean i i would just say stop the all of crying about being sorry. I, did. We, I don't care about that. Uh, what I would say is just be fair. If you've never even looked at a list of black businesses to invest in as a VC, just look. That's it. That's all black people ask asking. Is we're working hard. We're doing our thing. It's just you won't even look this way because of stigmas based on the fact that we may not be able to handle money as well or that in the tech field, we can't establish a long-term business. So I would say just be fair. Um, just live your life. And for most people, if they do that, um, a lot of the problems that can be solved amongst other communities will be solved as well i don't I don't think people need to do uh go over go overboard trying to solve racism by themselves <laughs> like a superhero that's pretty much impossible. but if you can just be a good person uh and be fair in your business dealings, I think that is the first step towards the future we all want to see.
0: Well, thanks so much, Isaiah. One more th- quick thing before we go. I always like to end every podcast episode with a segment I called Ex- Explain Your Tweet, which is where I dig through your Twitter account and pull out some interesting or cryptic or funny tweets and give you a chance to explain them. So you've got a lot of good content on there. Uh, the first one I've got is from March 30th. You tweeted, took a digital field trip to the Black Arts District on CryptoVoxels and this really is the future. Shout out to the creators and artists who made this possible. I've actually never seen this before or heard about it. Can you just talk a little bit more about what crypto voxels are? And then is it separated by districts and you can go to the Black Arts District or how does that work?
1: Yep. So there's districts. They put out new land every week where you can bid on it uh, in Ethereum. Uh, Virtual World that was introduced to me where most artists, they're starting to build museums with their art where you can click on it. You can bid on it through a third party like OpenSea or a variable or whatever. And the thing I like about it is that the VR game is just getting started. I think there's going to be tons of people who find, you know, a lot of their fun is going to come from putting on VR glasses, have a virtual world and doing the same stuff. Um, and I think that with crypto voxels, one of the best aspects, just like Decentraland, is that in a digital world, we can have or build things early now that in the future, I think will be worth way more uh, because the digital world hasn't really been explored. I just... Talked to a friend who helped build the metaverse for Burning Man, the uh, <laughs> the festival. She helped build the entire metaverse for that because it was online and digital this year. And I was like, this is literally the future. And the Black Arts District is just a reflection of that, mm-hmm. is that there are Black artists who have not been paid adequately over the years, and they can earn revenue in crypto that they couldn't before. Because, again, if if they sell it to somebody and they sell it to somebody else, they can earn residual forever. And I think that's good for our community and we should definitely be out front. And, and on crypto voxels, you can see it. The Black Arts District.
0: That's awesome. I'm definitely gonna go check that out. And you guys should too. I always tell people one of the best ways to learn about crypto and get into the space is just try it out for yourself. So whenever I hear about new things like crypto I always like to go and check it out for myself.
1: Absolutely. There's so much to learn. I can't keep up, man.
0: <laughs> I know. Well, it's constantly changing too. So it's like once you think you've like caught up, you know, there's like something new going on. All right, the next tweet, this is from March 13th. You said, moving to L.A. after 28 years in my hometown changed my life forever. You don't know how to really hustle until you're out of your comfort zone. So you talk about that story in your book. You moved out to L.A. to be with your business partner so that you guys could um, really grow the business. But so where are you from originally? Is it North Carolina where you're at right now?
1: Mm -hmm. Yep, originally from Charlotte. And, uh, yeah, moved out to L.A. when I was 28. Stayed there for uh, three years full time. Right now I'm splitting time. uh, But, yes. L.A. was, man, uh, if you've never lived in a big city before, you have to adjust instantly. Nobody's going to apologize for, you know, running you over. So I think from a business standpoint, it kept me sharp. And then my business partner, uh, which we do the Gentleman of Crypto together, we basically helped each other in this market together because I was in L.A., which made it a bit easier. But yeah, I love it. I love the people out there. Can't wait to get back and be there, you know, back and forth. But yeah, move to a big city if you want to prove yourself. Uh, I think big cities... They definitely, you know, show who's the strong and who can get stuff done.
0: A hundred percent. Yeah. And you'll find more opportunity there, too. So it's a win-win. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. And then last thing, it's not a specific tweet, but you've got a ton of tweets about the Bitcoin Classic. This is a basketball tournament down in Miami. Tell people what this is. I've never heard about it before.
1: Yes. So I just partnered up uh, with my friend Yusuf. He has a, a company called City of Guards. They do basketball tournaments around the country and I thought it would be great to have a basketball tournament one of my biggest loves before bitcoin was basketball uh, i would thought it would be great to have it at the biggest bitcoin tournament in the world because i'm starting to see a lot of athletes talk about bitcoin we just saw the sacramento kings today said that they're they can pay any player or coach in bitcoin if they want so we're starting to see it permeate through the the league anyway so i was like well if we have a classic or a bitcoin tournament uh where people can play basketball you know i sure to show my highlights on on twitter Just to, you know, get it going. Because, again, I played, you know, high school, a little bit in college. But I think a lot of people just want to find something outside of just to take part and talking about DeFi, just something to have fun um, and just sort of, you know, hang out with other people who may be good at basketball. Bring some NBA players, bring some sponsors, uh, grill out and have some fun. Are you going? You should you should come through. I I
0: just heard I just found out about it when I was going through your Twitter today. So I don't Mm -hmm. have any plans. When is it? It's this summer, right?
1: Yep. Uh, it'll be at Bitcoin 2021. It's June 5th through 6th. The winner wins 25000 in Bitcoin. Uh, looking for sponsors now. So if you want to sponsor, reach out. And for spectators, it's, it's only 20 bucks, but you'll get to network with some of the best people in the Bitcoin space.
0: Well, it's definitely on my radar. That's awesome.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Amazing.
0: Okay. Well, thanks so much, Isaiah, for being here as Great talking to you. Thanks for going through your book with me and I'm definitely going to pre-order your second book and I can't wait to get my hands on that and dive through that. If listeners if you haven't checked out Isaiah's book yet, definitely go check it out Bitcoin and Black America and then go and pre-order the second book so that you can stay up to date on all of this. It's uh, it's you know, it's really one of the best ways I think to get into the space in the first place. He just does such a great job of breaking down all the concepts and uh, has so many good practical use cases that I think everybody can relate to and understand at a really basic level. So I, I love that. And Isaiah, before you go, last thing, just tell people where they can find you if they want to connect with you personally. And then uh, feel free to plug. I feel like we've talked about it all already, but summarize it for people and plug the most important things that you've got coming up.
1: Oh, yeah. So most important things coming up, well, first, let me say you can find me at Bitcoin Zay on Twitter, at the Isaiah Jackson on Instagram, and at com. And the most important things coming up are the Bitcoin and Black America tour, June through December, the Bitcoin summer camp in July, and Community Crypto, my weekly show on Coindesk TV.
0: Awesome. Thanks again so much, Isaiah. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. And we'll be back again soon with another episode of the Unstoppable podcast.
1: Thank you. Appreciate it.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Unstoppable Podcast. If something we said today resonated with you, please rate, subscribe, and download our podcast and share this episode on social media with your network. And remember, the fun doesn't have to stop when the episode ends. You can continue this conversation with us on Twitter by tweeting your questions, thoughts, and ideas to Unstoppable Web. We look forward to chatting with you, and thanks again for listening.